Amen. Our scripture again is taken from 1 Peter, look at chapter 3 and verse 15. That's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Amen. 1 Peter and chapter 3, uh, reading only verse 15, and it reads as follows. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now, of course, I've read from the uh, the ESV, which reads a little bit differently from the uh, in AB or the King James, but that's a good rendition of Peter's words here. Now this particular verse, and it's only a single verse, but it provides really a good summary for how we are as Christians are to live out our faith in a fallen and sometimes hostile world. And I say sometimes hostile, I say that with with, with an asterisk. It's with the understanding that sometimes the world doesn't intend to be hostile to the faith, but their belief systems and their manner of living is just inherently contrary to what God himself has, has, has uh, ordained. And so therefore, they are hostile to the faith sometimes intentionally because they simply don't like the things that come from the people of God And sometimes they are hostile simply because their mindset is contrary to the things of of God. But in any event, this a good summary of this verse, as we'll see in a moment, is how Christians, how we as Christians are to live out our faith in a hostile, uh, sometime, in a fallen and sometimes hostile world. Now, I also need to, to qualify it in this way, that every place that we live, is hostile to the things of God. And by that, what I mean is we can't allow ourselves to be duped into thinking that one culture, one nation, one particular people, one country is somehow aligned with the kingdom of God. Because the truth of the matter is everything that is outside of the church, and we know that the church is the kingdom of God, is, is antithetical to the kingdom of God. Even when they, we get along at various points along the way, there is a distinction between nation states and the kingdom of God. And so what Peter is addressing in his letter is how we as believers, whether the nation itself considers itself to be friendly to the church or hostile to the church, that ultimately as we live out our faith, there are enough points of disagreement that we will understand that living out our faith in this fallen world is to live out our faith in a world that is hostile to the king of glory and to the things of the kingdom. 
So therefore, that's what Peter is, is writing about. How should we live out our faith? And I would argue, as we'll see momentarily, that he really gives us in this single verse three simple things that, and I say simple, but three things that really summarize what it means to live out our faith. Now, however, I want to lead up to it in this way. We shouldn't be surprised that we would get such an exhortation in this particular letter or from this particular author. Because Peter, Peter is, is, is writing to those who, as he tells us in chapter 1, those who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. So he's writing to believers who are scattered or dispersed throughout various parts of the Roman Empire. And he knows that some may live in this area and that area, whether it's Asia Minor or whether it's in some portions of of Palestine, they are still under the overarching rule of the Roman Empire. And so this becomes clear even in his greetings in chapter 1, where he makes it makes it clear that he is writing to Christians who are scattered throughout the empire. And isn't that a good description of all of us in this uh, this point in in Christian history that, that we are but Christians who are scattered throughout the empire, wherever that empire may be whether it's in North America, South America, Europe, Asia, we are Christians. We are citizens of the kingdom of God who have been dispersed and scattered in this world for the glory of the God who rules the world, never confusing the kingdoms of this earth with the kingdom of God, but we are therefore, we, that's why we will always be at odds at some point in the world in which we live. And therefore, we never need to, we should never lose sight of the fact that we are living in a fallen world. And it's for that reason that Peter also in chapter 4, since we, he's talking to those who are scattered throughout a fallen world, he reminds us in chapter 4 to not be surprised when we uh, experience fire, fiery trials, even um, uh, as we serve God in this world. We shouldn't be surprised. And the reason we shouldn't be surprised is because we're pilgrims. Because we are pilgrims and because we live in a hostile world And because this world is not as it is set up, this world does not represent the kingdom of God. And it's for this reason that God has interspersed us within the fabric of this world as as embassies of the heavenly kingdom. We know who who truly reigns. And he reigns in us and through us and through our collective gathering. But this world is, uh, the, the kingdoms of this world are always, no matter how nice, how, host, how, how, how uh, docile they are to the things of faith and to the people of faith, this world is still not the kingdom of God. And so Peter is writing to, to pilgrims who are dispersed within the kingdoms of this world, and that's why it's still relevant even for us. And even as he writes in this third chapter of First Peter, 
The point of this chapter is to provide exhortations for godly living. He deals with all of the relationships. He follows somewhat the pattern of Peter or of Paul when he gives his, in the writing of his letters, he usually begins with grand and broad theological statements concerning our position with Christ or in Christ. And then he breaks it down to the level of our living out our faith. And, and he gives practical exhortations. And that's what Peter is doing beginning in chapter 3. He's giving practical exhortations for those who are scattered among with, uh, throughout the Roman Empire who are citizens of, of the heavenly kingdom as well as the empire wherever it is that they live. And for this reason, again, he follows the pattern of Paul where his exhortation deals with how we are to conduct ourselves within the context of our marriages and our homes and families, and then even as we conduct ourselves broadly in the broader context of the world. And therefore, he makes his readers conscious of the fact that they do live in a world where doing these things, living out their faith, serving God in the context of family and country and the different places that the Lord calls them to, he reminds them that as they live out their faith, he reminds them of something that's very subtle, but they need to be mindful of, and that is they live in a world where doing good is not only not always recognized, but doing good in a world that sometimes may actually cause them to suffer. That's the point that he makes leading up to our text in verses 13 and 14 and then also in verses 16 and 17. Our text kind of lies in the middle of all of this that he reminds them beginning in verse 13. He says, now who is there to whom harm um, to, to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And that's, that's a rhetorical question. Who, who, would, who would think to do you harm while you're doing good? And then in verse 14, he gives the answer. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled uh, or nor be troubled. And then in verses 16 and 17, he says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that, if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Imagine what Peter is saying in essence that it's possible to not only do good in a world that's fallen, but in doing good, you might even suffer. For a number of years, I served on the board of directors for the Rafiki Foundation, which, as you know, we do work with Rafiki even still, and we support Sister Shaquilla Solomon, who serves Rafiki in uh, Jos, Nigeria, but when I served on the board of directors, directors, we actually had letters that would come in at various points because some of the places where we had Rafiki villages really were suffering persecution. And at, so, at one point, we had missionaries that were stationed in certain places, and we had a board meeting where we had letters that came in where people were wondering, are you going to call your missionaries home 
because they are in the midst of persecution. I never will, never will forget Rosemary Jensen, who was the president and over the organization at that time. And Rosemary read the letter out loud and she said, uh, I hope we are all prepared to stand behind me when I say this. No, we are not calling our missionaries home because they are in harm's way. This is the world in which we live, and it was hostile to the things of God before our missionaries went. It was hostile when we sent them, and they knew what they were getting into even when we sent them out. Now, that's not harsh. That is a reminder that serving God and doing good is not always recognized by the outside world and sometimes, not only is it not only not recognized, but sometimes it is actually met with disdain, with suffering, and with hostility. And so therefore, uh, Peter gives these exhortations in chapter 3, and he admonishes the people of God to always be driven by this when doing good. Not that it's always safe, but the reason we do good it's not because it's safe, and we don't do good simply so that we can be rewarded. We do good because doing good is the right thing to do. That's what Peter reminds his believers of, that doing good is the right thing to do. And because we live in a fallen world, we should not be surprised, nor should we be discouraged when our good deeds are either A, not recognized, or B, they are not appreciated. And may I even add that when it comes to doing the things of God in the church, I remind preachers of this all the time, that we don't serve God because people always appreciate the service that we render. We serve God because it's right. And we do the things of God because it's good, and we do what is good and what is right, because that's what God has called us to. And he's called us to do these things against hostility, against non-appreciation, and against sometimes people who would, 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 would go with you until you start doing good, and then they don't understand. So therefore, we do good in the world because it's right. And because it's good, and because it honors, and because it glorifies the God that we serve. I pray that whatever area of Christian service the Lord calls us to, that if we ever find ourselves wondering if we should stop doing and stop serving, it would never be because people don't appreciate it. I hope that what we do for the Lord is not just so that people would appreciate it and blow our horns and pat us on the back, and tell us we love what you do. No, that's not what we do. And by the way, when people appreciate our service for the Lord for what it is, we should appreciate their appreciation. But it's never our motivation. We don't serve God so that people can applaud. We don't serve God so that people would like us. We serve God, and we honor God, and we do the things of God because it's good. And when we ever find ourselves not serving God because it's good, 
And it's not always good to us in terms of the results that we experience, but we do the things of God because it's good. And when we ever do things for God, not because it's good, it will become even more laborious. Therefore, what I want to do this evening is just take a few moments to look at three things that Peter says in this verse that should guide us and help us in terms of understanding our service to God in a living in, in, in a fallen world. And the reason I say that is because it's the, 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 the fact that it's a fallen world increases the difficulty factor in doing our service. I never will forget I had a manager once, an office manager in, uh, in, in another job, and he said if you take a, a two-by-four a piece of, of plywood and you lay it on the floor and you tell people to walk across it, we'll usually walk across it with no difficulty, with no second thought, with no problems whatsoever. But you take that same width of board and you place it between two 20-store buildings and you then connect one end of the board to the other building and you say, now walk across it, it becomes a little more hard. Not that the board has changed, not that your ability to walk across a two-by-four piece of wood changes or four-by-five piece of wood changes, but what changes is the difficulty factor. It is a joy to do the work of the Lord, but when we do the work of the Lord in a fallen world, among fallen people, even doing the work of the Lord in the context of the church amongst fallen Christians who are redeemed and indwelt by the Spirit, there is a difficulty factor because of the fall. And therefore, I want to look at three things that Peter gives us that should, again, guide us in living out our faith in this present world. The first thing is this, honoring Christ as holy should be the engine that drives all of our actions. That's what Peter says in verse 15. He says, but, but uh, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That is the engine that drives all of our service to God in this world, that we serve not only a risen Savior, but we serve a sovereign and holy Savior, and he is holy. And the fact that we get to serve this holy, sovereign Savior is really the motivation that drives all of our actions in this world. I think of Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah was called into the temple of the Lord in the year that King Uzziah died. And, and he says, and I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his, and, and his robe filled the whole temple and the temple was filled with smoke. And then he says he heard a, a loud, he, heard the, he saw the cherubims and they were crying out, holy, holy, holy. And he saw this glimpse of the Lord's glory. And seeing the Lord in the fullness of his glory, he says, woe is me, because I'm a man undone. And I have seen the Lord in his glory, and I don't deserve to see it. And then the, he says that the, the, cerebrum that uh, the, the seraphim that he saw, they took live coals from off of the altar, and they put it to his mouth to purge his mouth, because he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. 
And I come from a people of unclean lips. And the angelic beings purge the filthiness of his nature. And then he says he heard the voice say to him, Now who will go for me? Who will go and who will serve me? And, and, his, and Isaiah in the temple, as it were, perhaps by himself, didn't want anyone to jump in. And so he says, Lord, here I am. Send me. Who is it that he is saying, send me? It's the one who has come, who has encountered the holy God. And he has encountered him and he has been purged of his sinfulness. And the one who feels worthy to serve the Lord is not because of his merits and it's not because of his goodness, but he feels compelled to serve the Lord because he's become conscious of his uncleanness and he is the recipient of divine cleansing. Brothers and sisters, what is it that propels us to serve the Lord? Why do we preach? Why do we serve? Why do we do the things that we do? It's not because, just because we think we might be good at it. The reason behind every service unto the Lord in this world is because we have, an, have had an encounter with the holiness of the triune God that we serve. And that's what Peter says. He says, let this, let this be the thing that propels you into a service, that you are honoring the holiness of Christ. That you recognize that Christ is Lord of all. And you honor him as being holy. And brothers and sisters, isn't that the missing ingredient when we don't feel appreciated by the ones that we serve? Isn't that the missing ingredient when we serve in a world that seems to be driven by a different agenda? Isn't that the missing ingredient? Why do we continue to get up and do what we do? Because we know that the one that we serve is holy. And our efforts of worship, our efforts of service, is to respond to the fact that the Holy Other has enlisted us into his service, that he has, he has called us, he has enlisted us to represent him in this world. And yes, people may change, and affections may change. Sometimes we're in and sometimes we're out. Sometimes we're popular and other times we're unpopular. But the one thing that doesn't change for those who serve the Lord is the holiness of the one that we serve. Let everything that we do, whether it's, I, I like what David says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to be the guest of honors in a, in a, in a den of, of sinners. And so whether we are respected or disrespected, honored or dishonored, whether we are recognized or unrecognized, whether we are appreciated or unappreciated, what drives us in our service is that we serve a God who is holy and has drafted us who are the exact opposite into his service. Again, that's why I like what Isaiah says. And the Lord gives us that scenario. Because it doesn't say of anyone else who is in the temple. But when the Lord has purged his mouth. And has cleansed him of his uncleanness. And he says, now who will go for me? Isaiah doesn't want anyone to speak up for him. Lord, I'll go. 
Send me. And isn't that what serves us? Isn't that what propels us into the king's service? I grew up in an old school National Baptist black church. And when I first came to my pastor to tell him, I think the Lord has called me to preach, he says, go and tarry. He said, he said go and tarry, go think about it. And, and then I came back and said, well, Pastor Newman, I, I think I'm called to, to the ministry. He says, well, he asked this question. He says, can you not preach? I thought about it. I said, no, I, I don't think I, I cannot preach. He says, okay, well, if you, if you can't not do it, then we can talk. But if you can say that you cannot do it, then go ahead and do whatever else that you, can think you, you think you need to do. Isn't that what it is, whether we are serving the Lord in our auxiliaries, in our mission areas? If we cannot do it, then don't. But if you can't help but do it, like Jeremiah, that's like fire shut up in your bones, and you can't help but do it, then do it to the glory of the Lord, whether anybody recognizes it or not. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that we do this to the glory of the Lord. He, we, we do it, and, 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 and we do it to the glory of the Lord, and we are always abounding in the work of the Lord because we know that serving the holy God who saves us and who has called us into a service is never in vain. And so here's the first thing. Honoring Christ as holy is the engine that drives all of our actions and our service in honoring God. We are doing it in honor of the Holy One. We're not doing it in order to earn favor from Him. We are doing it in honor of Him because the Holy One has purged us of our sins. So let all of our service be driven by the fact that we are seeking to honor God. We are seeking to honor God, particularly God the Son, who has called us into his holy service. Here's the second thing. We should be able to defend our actions of service and, and our actions as, as being reasonable and the logical consequences of our convictions. The, the motive of our service to God is because we recognize that Christ is holy. But in serving him, that's going to put us at odds with certain things within the culture. And so we should be able to defend the service that we render unto God on the basis of our convictions about his personhood. Now, it's at this point that 1 Peter 3.15, the, thing, the thing that is most famous for is that word defend. We should be able, in the ESV, it says that we should be able to defend our faith. In other words, that we should be able to give, as it says in the King James, give an answer for everyone that asks for the reasons that, of, of the hope that is within us. It's from this that we get the word the Greek word that lends to our English term of apologetics. That we should be able to defend our faith. 
It doesn't mean defend in the same way that you defend your home. But it simply means that we should be able to give a reason for the hope that causes us to act antithetical to the world and the way things that that people think we should act. In other words, when we are driven by the holiness of God, we should be able to defend our actions that put us at odds with the culture and with the people that are around us, we should be able to defend it in a way that says our service to God is a logical consequence (coughs) and a reasonable consequence of our convictions. For instance, in the book of Acts, we are told that one of the, 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 the mantras of the early church is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That was the mantra of the early church, that Jesus is Lord. And what they meant by that is, yes, Caesar is Caesar, but Jesus is Lord. And the lordship of Christ is greater than the Caesarship of whoever it is that is ruling. And that's why early on, the logical consequence of this is when the disciples found themselves at odds with the political leaders of the day, and they said, okay, here's what we'll do. We will let you go free as long as you don't preach and teach in the name of Jesus. And it was Peter that answered that we must obey God because he is Lord rather than men. In other words, brothers and sisters, when we serve God, we know that there will be those who don't understand. When we serve God in the manner in which we are supposed to serve him, then it's going to put us at odds. And here's what Peter is saying. We need to win our obedience to Christ conflicts with the expected standards of men, then we should be able to give a reason for why we obey God rather than men. Be able to explain why we do it and why we refuse to do this, that, or the other. You see, it's, it's, it's not just, well, I'm a Christian and I don't. No, that's not enough because we have been given a responsibility in the world in which we serve. And so in honor of the times and in honor of the world and in honor of the Christ that we serve, here's what Peter is saying. Here's the first thing. Serve him in honor of his holiness. And when, his, when service to his and obedience to his holiness brings you into conflict with the minds of men and the expected expect or the expectations of men, then you need to be able to explain why you are honoring him over men. I wish contemporary American evangelicals would learn that lesson, that we are subservient to God. And we have no, we don't have to give excuses for serving God. And serving God is sometimes going to put us on the, on the other side of particular issues and even individuals. But our obedience is to God. I like the way Joseph explains it. 
when Potiphar's wife came on to him. You remember in the book of, of Genesis and Potiphar's, Potiphar's wife came on to him and, 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 and made advancements towards him. And he answered it this way. He says, how can I do this thing before God? And he, yes, he has been honored by Potiphar, her husband, but his allegiance wasn't first and foremost to Potiphar. His allegiance was first and foremost to God. You say, wait a minute, but Joseph, serving God, got you thrown into a pit and, and written off as dead by your brothers, but God is still faithful. And so here he is. He says, I can't do this thing against God. Brothers and sisters, yes, we should be able to defend our actions. Our actions that sometimes put us at odds with the ways of the world. We should defend it because we should be able to explain it in light of what we believe. The reason we serve God is because he is sovereign. The reason we do A, Y, or A, B, and C, and we don't do D, E, and F, is because of what we believe about A, B, and C. We must be grounded in what we understand about A, B, and C. And that's why this verse has been used to defend the whole discipline of Christian apologetics. And apologetics, uh, really doctrine, is, it says what we believe. And apologetics is, a, is the defense of what we believe. It's the reason that we give for what we believe. So let me just put it this way. Here's the basic bottom line reason for what we believe about Jesus. Because he rose from the dead. Amen. He rose from the dead. Everything else that he said, everything else that he claimed, if we thought we understood it and believed it, it is underlined, it is, it is highlighted by the fact that he rose. If he did not rise from the dead, we wouldn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But he did. And we do. And because he rose, we believe. And because we believe, we serve. And so we need to be able to explain, and that's why I know some songs, they, they, they go in a particular direction, but I, I, and I love the song about up, up to a point, you know, he lives, and you say, and, and you ask me why I, and I know he lived, that's my point of departure. Why do I say he lives? Not because he lives in my heart, but I believe he lives because the scripture says he lives. And because the scripture says the grave is empty. And since the grave is empty, we know that he lives. In 1 Corinthians 15, we are told that there were over 500 people that saw him at one time. So the people who were alive at that time said that they know that he died and he lives. So the proof for the fact that he lives is not what lives in my heart. It's what's not in that grave in Jerusalem. We need to be able to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And brothers and sisters, the end of the road of all of the reasons for our belief can never be what's in us. It always has to be outside of us. I remember as a child listening to this sermon and the preacher was going on and he was preaching and he gave an illustration 
about a boy who was flying a kite and he was, the kite was out there and he says, and it went higher and higher and finally it went behind the clouds. And, and, and someone came by and they saw him holding this string and they said, uh, little young man, what are you doing? He says, I'm flying my kite. He said, well, I don't see a kite out there. How do you know that it's still there? And he says, well, because I, every now and then I feel it moving. I said, well, that's cute. But that's not the reason he knew he was flying a kite. He knew he was flying his kite because physically and objectively it was a kite that he let up into the air and it was a kite that he released with the twine and it was a kite when it went behind the clouds and just because there are clouds there, it doesn't cease to be a cloud. How does he know that the cloud, that the kite is still there is because it hasn't come down. How do we know that Jesus lives? Because the grave is empty. Because a Roman soldier was willing to take his life because he couldn't explain the absence in the grave. We know that he lives. And he lives. And because he lives, brothers and sisters, we serve. Why do we serve Jesus as Lord? Because he rose. And after he rose, he said all authority, heaven and earth, has been given in, in given to me. And so since he died and he rose, we tend to believe people who have come back from the grave. And so therefore, our hope, the reason, the logical consequence of our service to the living Savior is grounded in the fact that he is Jesus which is confer, or he is Jesus, he is the Christ, the son of the living God, which is confirmed by the fact not just that he died or that he was buried, but by the fact that he is risen and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Well, that brings us to the third thing here. Peter says not only should we, the, the engine that drives all of our obedience to God is because we are setting out our lives to honor the holiness of Christ. And then we should be able to give a logical explanation for our service to him over anything that we owe to men. That everything else is subservient to our service to Christ. And we should explain the fact that because he was born of a virgin and because he was crucified on our behalf and because he was raised on the third day by the power of God and he ascended into the heavens 40 days hence, we believe that and that's why we serve him. And until you can disprove that, you can't take away my faith. But Then thirdly, Peter says, the spirit in which we both render our service and the spirit in which we defend our faith should reflect the one that we serve. Notice what he says. He says that we should give a reason for our faith with, with, with respect and with, the, with honor. One of the things that characterizes much of Christian discourse in this generation is this combativeness. Whether it's unbelievers or whether it's people from different tribes and different belief systems, we love to get in a fight. 
And in doing so, we dishonor and we disrespect the ones that we have disagreements with. And Peter says, no, that's not the way we do this. He says, no, because we are seeking to honor him with our service. And then we give a logical explanation for our service. Because the one that we serve is meek and mild, then we should give a defense for what we believe in a spirit of meekness, in a spirit of humility, and certainly in a a spirit that gives honor to the ones that we disagree with. Brothers and sisters, we should not boast in our ability to destroy our enemies. It's one of the things that we see in our present political environment that we otherize the people who are on the other side of the aisle, whether we believe or whether we agree or disagree. Our, our disagreements are still, is still coming from people who are committed to the service of the risen Savior. And the best respect that we can give to the risen Savior is to, get, to defend what we believe in the proper spirit. And the proper spirit is honor and respect. Can you imagine getting into a theological with Saul of Tarsus before he became the Apostle Paul? Number one, he probably would shred us to bits because he was well grounded in what he believed. But if we are dismissive of him, Because his position before his conversion was on the other side of the Christian faith. In such a way that he thought it was okay to bring persecution to those who called upon the name of the Lord. And then the Lord changed his heart. Brothers and sisters, it's not, we are not the ones who condemn people to hell. That's God's responsibility. But he has left us here. To tell others, no matter what camp you are in, even if you were in the business of putting other saints to death, that the mercies and grace of God can reach you. And so we defend our faith. We defend what we do. What we do it in a spirit in which we are not unnecessarily attacking others because of what they do or do not believe. Peter says, do it in a spirit of meekness. Old King James has it in a spirit of humility. But I still love the way the ESV reads it, that we are to do it with gentleness and respect. We can disagree with people and still respect that they are image bearers of the Most High God. We will wash our hands with their arguments. They might be crazy. They are still, they're crazy in God's. But we do not show disrespect in the things that we do in the name of the Lord. Here's how we serve God in this present generation. We serve him by honoring the holiness of Christ. And we serve him by being able to reason from our convictions that lead to our actions, explaining why we do what we do. We worship, and, and one of the reasons, let me just throw this in here. We should, we should be able to explain why we worship the Lord on Sunday and not on Saturday. 
Saturday is the biblical Sabbath. So why then do we serve the Lord on Sunday? Because he rose on Sunday. And the scripture calls it the Lord's day. And it's not that the Sabbath is, is no longer valid and the substance of the Sabbath is no, is no longer valid, but Jesus is the beginning of the new creation and he worshiped, he rose on the third day. So the Christian church worships on the Lord's day. Be able to explain what you believe and be able to do it in a spirit of gentleness and respect. Why? Because we are honoring the holiness of the one that we serve. That's what Peter says. So how do we serve God in this generation? By honoring Christ's holiness. By understanding what we do and why we do it. And by doing it in a spirit that reflects the holiness of the one that we serve. That's our good news. Brothers and sisters, we are not serving God so we can get home. We serve God because he has already brought us home. We are not serving God so we can get to heaven. We are already in heaven. We're not serving God so that we can, so that he'll take us in. He's already taken us in. And because he's taken us in, we serve him. And we serve him knowing what we believe and why. And we, we do this in a spirit of respect, even if it draws the ire and the irritation of men. We will do it because we are doing it in a spirit that honors the one that we serve. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do thank you for this, another Lord's Day, and another opportunity of praise and worship. We thank you for our time of fellowship with our brothers and sisters. We lift before you all of those that we have worshiped and fellowship with on this day. We thank you for your word that has been opened up for us. Strengthen us by these things for your service and for your glory. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand? Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before his presence. To the only wise God, our Savior, be power, majesty, and dominion, both now and forever. And let all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.